Jeff's children were only two and four when he made the fateful decision to become a whistleblower. The full extent of his sacrifice became apparent one night when he came home to an empty house. Eventually, his position in the company was made untenable, and in 2013, he quit the bank. This is Kate Golden from the Walkley Foundation, and this is the Walkley Talks podcast for May 12, 2016. Fairfax reporter Adele Ferguson has broken some huge investigations, the kind that take on institutions, inspire Senate inquiries, and change a lot of lives. But there's a dark side to these stories, the price often paid by the people who tip her off. And Adele is acutely aware of that price. And she's come to worry that despite how much we need whistleblowers, not just journalists, but all of us, that price is just too high. In this podcast, I want to share with you a speech she gave about it for the Press Freedom Australia Dinner in Sydney last week. She's introduced by Kate McClymont, a Walkley board member, who's an investigative reporting force of nature in her own right. Here's Kate. Now, Adele Ferguson, what can I say? Only recently, I was in the lift with a certain senior Fairfax executive who will remain unknown, but this chap was bemoaning, I can see you there, his (laughs) dreadful plight. A major water leak had driven his family out of their home. Months and months had gone by and their insurance company was driving them nuts. I looked at the executive and said, I have two words of advice for you, Adele Ferguson. (laughs) I don't know whether he's taken it up, but Adele is a fearless business columnist for The Age, The Herald and The Finn Review. Her exposés on the Commonwealth Bank and 7-Eleven convenience stores have netted her, quite rightly, a swag of awards, including the Gold Walkley. She's also known for her tireless pursuit of Gina Reinhart. Now, in 2011... (laughs) Oh, thank you to that table over there. It was 2011, and Adele was up in Sydney having a group... ..having a dinner with a a group of um, we fellow journalists, and her phone rang. And Adele went off to take it. And she came back to the table and she was quite clearly shaken. Her husband, Christian, said someone had just been to their house in Melbourne and was trying to serve legal documents on Adele. He wouldn't tell Christian what it was about. It's personal, said the man ominously. Adele in Sydney didn't sleep well that night and neither did Christian in Melbourne. And a few weeks earlier, someone had knocked at their door claiming they wanted to talk to Adele about witnessing a car accident. There was no such car accident. A week later, Adele did get served. It was Gina Reinhardt's doing. She was trying to force Adele to hand over sources for stories Adele had been writing on the richest woman in the world. Now, the West Australian courts, God bless them, had previously recognised media shield laws in separate proceedings Reinhardt had brought against Steve Pennells from the West Australian. Now, due to the shield laws, Gina Reinhardt had been unsuccessful in trying to force him to to reveal sources. Now, although Reinhardt was ordered to pay Adele substantial costs, it's now 18 months down the track and Reinhardt is still quibbling about having to pay the costs. Now, 
Often our readers don't get to hear about the courage it requires to bring these kind of stories to the attention of the public. So tonight I'd like to get you to welcome the fearless and peerless Adele Ferguson. It's a great honour to be here tonight and to speak on subjects that are of national significance. Whistleblowers and our need for a Royal Commission into the financial services sector. Thank you. Over the past three years, my stories at Fairfax and the ABC's Four Corners have laid bare serious failures and misconduct from some of our biggest companies. Household brands such as Commonwealth Bank, National Australia Bank and 7-Eleven have all broken our trust and ruined the lives of thousands of people. It's hard to believe in this day and age that such things can happen, but they do. Sadly, they will continue to happen without a serious change in the culture of these companies, better laws backed by heftier penalties and a stronger backbone from our corporate regulator to use the powers that it has. The conduct of our banks is an election issue, with Labor promising a Royal Commission and the Liberal Party against it. With the polls showing that the majority of Australians are in favour of such a Royal Commission, politicians need to remember it doesn't matter if you're from the left or the right, voters from both persuasions have been victims. None of these stories would have come to light without the brave contribution of whistleblowers. Without them, the bright light would not have shone on the financial planning arm of Combank, systemic wage fraud at 7-Eleven, and misconduct at Combank's life insurance arm, Cominsure. We all owe the whistleblowers an immense debt of gratitude. Tonight, I would like to lead you through my experiences dealing with whistleblowers on these stories, ponder some ways to improve our system, and highlight what I believe is a dangerous development. Whistleblowers have not always been flavour of the month. For some perverse reason, they've been portrayed in the popular culture as lonely, disgruntled employees who spill the beans out of malice. In 1971, Harvard-trained lawyer Ralph Nader, who blew the whistle on the US car industry, told a conference in Washington, D.C. that whistleblowers are seen as squealers, stool pigeons and informers who ratted on their bosses. As well as wearing a badge of shame, whistleblowers were often sacked, bullied or sidelined. This is still the case in Australia. Jeff Morris, who was a financial planner at Combank, is a whistleblower. He came to me in March 2013, a week after I'd been served with a subpoena from billionaire mining magnate Gina Reinhardt to get my contacts. Here I was going up against Reinhardt, who at the time was a major shareholder at Fairfax, and about to take on the biggest bank in the country. But Jeff came to me after he and two other whistleblowers at the bank had unsuccessfully sought action from the corporate regulator. They wanted to expose forgery, fraud, and a cover-up of management in the bank's financial planning arm. 
What I found was an aggressive sales culture in the bank, which encouraged its planners to take risks with other people's money, while also turning a blind eye to practices that may have amounted to criminal acts. Signatures were forged, documents were doctored, and victims were given minimal compensation and forced to sign confidentiality agreements. Exposing wrongdoing in this division proved that the bank's ruthless profit-first culture was widespread. A dying man, Noel Stevens, was refused a life insurance payout after being talked into swapping one that always guaranteed to pay him out. The switch was made so that the teller and the planner could earn a commission. The bank fought the action, but eventually lost with the judges saying the bank had been misleading and deceptive in their scathing judgment. The joint investigation with Fairfax and Four Corners was called Banking Bad, and it showed how dodgy Don Nugent, a financial planner at CBA, was being rewarded inside the bank despite management knowing he was putting clients' money at risk. Don was allowed to resign in 2008, and has so far received hundreds of thousands of dollars from income protection insurance paid by ComBank. We tracked him down at his family's dry cleaning business where he blamed lax oversight for his actions. But Commonwealth Bank promotes itself as a trusted institution which puts the interests of clients first. The joint investigation exposed the ugly truth behind this facade, a hunger for profits which destroyed lives and a culture of cover-up that continues to this day to avoid exposure at all costs. Astonishingly, it would take the corporate regulator 16 months after Jeff went to them to investigate the bank. When ASIC finally arrived, the bank embarked on a wide-scale witch hunt for the leakers. It's hard to imagine how stressful that would be. All three whistleblowers were interviewed by CBA Group Security in an effort to identify the source of the leaks. One of the three whistleblowers died in his sleep at the age of 35 after leaving the company. A second remained anonymous, but suffered considerably from the atmosphere of suspicion and intimidation. He also left the company. Jeff Morris remained on his own in this hostile environment in an effort to continue feeding information to ASIC after becoming aware of a possible death threat and receiving no assistance or protection from the whistleblower, from the regulator, he was eventually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, known as PTSD. This obviously had an impact on his family. Jeff's children were only two and four when he made the fateful decision to become a whistleblower. The full extent of his sacrifice became apparent one night when he came home to an empty house. Eventually, his position in the company was made untenable, and in 2013, he quit the bank. Fairfax published Jeff's story in June 2013. It triggered a Senate inquiry, which recommended a Royal Commission into ComBank, and that was on the basis that the regulator couldn't be trusted to do the job properly. ComBank staved off a Royal Commission by agreeing to set a compensation scheme and writing to hundreds of thousands of customers offering to review the advice they'd been given. Jeff has now dedicated his life to changing the financial services industry's culture. And since blowing the whistle, he's appeared at many Senate hearings and been a strident advocate for a Royal Commission. 
He's also been a mentor to other whistleblowers. And increasingly, he says that of the potential whistleblowers that want to talk, very few will go ahead and pay the high personal price to do the right thing under the current system. Jeff has also helped victims successfully fight the banks for compensation, sometimes for free and sometimes for a small payment. But taking on the financial services sector is fraught. Not only do the banks play tough using their legal and commercial might, they also play hardball. It might all be within the law, but brutal put-down techniques are used to intimidate or bully some journalists into not covering some controversial issues. Journalists who write something negative about the banks are denounced to their editors as being anti-business. Bank executives, public relations personnel and lobbyists have been in overdrive using unimaginably underhand back-channel techniques to confuse and misdirect politicians and the media. Off-the-record whispering campaigns about Jeff Morris to some journalists and politicians have been a disgrace. These started when the first story ran three years ago and they've continued to this day. The most recent was around the time CBA announced that it aspired to be Australia's most ethical bank. The bank, having agreed to pay Jeff Morris's advocacy fees for some victims he was representing, tried to portray it differently. The implication was he was an extortionist when in fact he was char charging for services rendered, a far smaller fee than most lawyers charge. But Jeff isn't the only whistleblower to suffer a smear campaign. A whistleblower at another large financial services company, IOOF, who'd been inspired by Jeff Morris, decided to take his concerns to the company instead of ASIC. Big mistake. IOOF is one of the biggest 100 companies listed on the ASX. It has thousands of shareholders and customers. The IOOF expose published last year included insider trading, cheating on exams, staff giving financial advice without proper educational credentials, the company misrepresenting performance figures for the purpose of getting customers to invest in IOOF funds, and staff producing faulty research reports that had buy and sell recommendations on stocks without any basis. Remember, IOOF's customers made decisions based on those recommendations with real money their money. This whistleblowing employee had initially reported the scandal to the company, hoping to make a difference. He was bullied, sacked, told he was vindictive, and by the way, you're not a whistleblower. He then came to me with thousands of documents. So together with a colleague, we sorted through the maze of lax compliance inside IOOF. But the smear campaign that followed was incredible. I received an email from a senior representative at IOOF and my jaw literally dropped. It said, my so-called whistleblower was a blackmailer, had threatened to kidnap the children of several staff members. The email went on, you've been sucked in by a person who has mental problems and in doing so, you've grossly abused the privileges given to journalists to report fairly. Myself and a colleague met the IOOF officer who made those accusations. He had no proof of any of them, not one. Sadly, it's tactics 101 for companies in the crosshairs of a public scandal to discredit the whistleblower, 
and try and detract attention from the main game, misconduct. The IWF whistleblower hasn't got a hope in hell of getting a job in the industry. His reputation has been destroyed. Was it worth it? I asked him just the other day. He said a few times he's thought about the question and if he was placed in the situation again, I'd go straight to the media and not the company. That's my regret. He's also disappointed with the regulator. He said he'd been contacted once for a 35-minute chat and that was only after he sent an email to the chairman, Greg Medcraft, and CC'd me in it, complaining nobody contacted him or asked him about the 59,000 documents or how to navigate them. He's still waiting. Another whistleblower who I've dealt with is the Commonshaw whistleblower, Dr. Benjamin Coe. He was the chief medical officer at Combank's life insurance arm, Commonshaw. When he joined Cominshaw, trade magazines wrote him up as a big coup for the bank due to his seniority and his credentials. But he opened a Pandora's box into the $44 billion life insurance industry when he exposed how sick and dying people were being treated by Cominshaw. Some had their claims delayed for years. Some were denied on the basis of medical definitions that were out of date. Employees at CBA claiming on their life insurance policy weren't immune. One employee, Helen Polydoropoulos, had multiple sclerosis and was medically retired from the bank. When she lodged her claim, she was knocked back on the basis she could work. She fought for four years with mounting legal fees, but was paid out only after she appeared on Four Corners. Dr. Coe could see what was going on inside the insurer and decided to speak up. He alleges claims managers were cherry-picking doctors or learning, leaning on doctors to deny claims. In the case of victim Evan Pashalis, who was terminally ill, they gave him the runaround and denied his money, the money he and his family were entitled to receive until he appeared on Four Corners and in Fairfax. Dr. Coe decided to speak out for the greater good. It's a measure of his courage that despite being warned about the likely consequences for himself, he still went ahead. It was very emotional for him. I remember him saying to me a few nights before Four Corners went to air, I've put my life in your hands. That sentence has stuck in my brain. Cominshaw was one of the biggest challenges of my career. My dealing with Dr. Coe, I knew it was a story that would have an impact if he spoke out with his name on the record. So having the chief medical officer doing that would be much more powerful than an anonymous employee. But it wasn't easy. He didn't want to be seen as a hero and taking on a big bank isn't for the faint-hearted. His speaking out has had massive ramifications. The bank has already paid out victims on Four Corners and in Fairfax. It's set up a panel to review complex claims. ASIC is investigating the industry. And most importantly, it's played a key role in the federal opposition's call for a Royal Commission into the sector. And the banks have also come out and said they will review whistleblower policies and pay compensation for what that's worth. But I've received hundreds of emails from victims of Cominshaw and other insurance companies since those stories came out last month. 
I'll give you a taste of some of the emails. Hi Adele, I've suffered a major depression in the past two years. I've been seeing my psychiatrist on a weekly basis for help. Cominshaw denied my claim because they said they don't believe my doctors. I'm dying slowly, I need help. I can't do any work, I'm about to lose my house. Or oh, there's another one. I'm a former CBA employee who used to promote and sell Cominshaw life products. For my situation, I requested Cominshaw consider my claim for total and permanent disability. The company has, no has done nothing short of being terrible. The delaying tactics are never ending and the TPD claim is still ongoing. Cominshaw had even enlisted a private investigator to stake out my house. And there's just one more. I had a policy with Cominshaw for life insurance for approximately, for approximately 20 years. At the time of lodging my claim, I was paying Cominshaw $1,260 a month. In 2010, I underwent open heart surgery. I was informed post-surgery I might expect to have further surgery. My claim on Cominshaw was rejected. Because of Cominshaw's lack of application to my case, I lost my home and business. But not all the emails relate to Cominshaw. It's an industry-wide problem. Millions of people buy life insurance for peace of mind, either directly or through their super fund. Many are being dudded. When I think about the stories I've covered and the role of whistleblowers, an interesting pattern emerges. Jeff Morris went to ASIC and was thrown to the wolves and left to negotiate his own exit from CBA. The IWF whistleblower went to the company and was sacked and smeared. Dr. Coe went to the company as well and he too was sacked and his professional integrity impugned. The ones who suffered the least were the 7-Eleven and National Australia Bank whistleblowers. Both decided to go straight to the media to tell their story. The 7-Eleven whistleblower emerged when I was halfway through filming with Four Corners. It was a story about systemic wage fraud against foreign students on visas. Some were paid as little as $5 an hour. The investigation showed how the business model of 7-Eleven forced many of the franchisees to underpay workers to make ends meet. After writing to 7-Eleven for an interview, management held a meeting with the staff to warn them that Four Corners and Fairfax were about to do a hatchet job. One employee decided to reach out and help. He provided internal documents that showed willful blindness by head office and he agreed to go on camera in disguise. He said all stores were underplaying workers and the company knew. So when the stories came out, it had an immediate impact. 7-Eleven announced an independent compensation scheme. It changed its business model. Heads rolled, including the CEO and chairman, and the company agreed to fix up its compliance systems. 7-Eleven still has a long way to go but hundreds of foreign students have received more than $12 million in back pay. It's changed some of their lives and it's empowered them. They feel the media and the public cares. The whistleblower at 7-Eleven who went on Four Corners and in Fairfax in disguise, he managed to keep his job. I spoke to him a few days ago and he says he has no regrets about going to the media. He feels sorry for the plight of the other whistleblowers who went to the company or to ASIC first. 
So with Commonshaw still fresh in my mind, I've had a few interesting experiences myself. It began with David Cohen, Commonwealth Bank's Group General Counsel, who's also the head of Group Corporate Affairs, an interesting dual role. Mr Cohen wrote to the ABC in Fairfax three days after the show went to air, stating, we understand from Adele Ferguson, the journalist featured in the Four Corners program on 7 March 2016, that she has received personal information of Commonshaw customers from Dr Ben Coe, a former employee of Commonwealth Bank. Just to be clear, I've never told anyone who or how I received my information, and I certainly never told CBA or Mr Cohen that it came from Dr Coe. He went on to say that the information included highly confidential and sensitive medical, financial and private information. If Fairfax or the ABC has held or currently holds personal information of Commonshore customers without the express consent of each affected customer, it will be necessary for Commonshore to notify the Privacy Commissioner of a privacy breach and to inform APRA. Then another unrelated issue arose. I received a phone call from law firm Morris Blackburn asking if I'd spoken to a certain female victim of Commonshaw who happened to be one of their clients. I hadn't heard the name but asked why. Apparently this woman had run Commonshaw and Morris Blackburn to say an Adele from Four Corners had called her up and was reciting chapter and verse all her medical history. The person was understandably disconcerted with the phone call. It seems in the course of the telephone conversation, I'd offered a meeting with lawyer Michael Bates to discuss her claim. Airfares, accommodation and expenses would be paid for. So Adele from Four Corners is also moonlighting as a client thief and spruker, and a pretty clumsy one as well. Whoever had stolen my identity hadn't done the research properly. Michael Bates, who appeared on Four Corners, is based in Melbourne, whereas the Michael Bates, the bogus Adele from Four Corners had mentioned, is a patent lawyer based in Sydney. I rang Michael Bates, the real one, to warn him about the call. He then related a similar story. A Commonshaw lawyer he was dealing with had told him someone from Four Corners was ringing a claim ma claims manager with 20 years experience and threatening to subpoena her if she didn't hand over the information. I asked Michael to find out who from Four Corners was supposedly making these calls. The story came back was different. It was a customer, not a claims manager, who Adele from Four Corners had called, he was told. Just to be clear, I've never impersonated anyone and I certainly don't spruik for lawyers. Someone was out to blacken my reputation and damage the Four Corners brand. A Fairfax lawyer wrote to the bank to let them know somebody was impersonating me. We're still waiting to hear back. When the Prime Minister spoke at Westpac's birthday party recently, he said more whistleblowers should speak up. Yes, I agree, they should. But he needs to recognise that until laws are changed, many won't. Whistleblowing laws, similar to shield laws, lack teeth and uniformity. We need stronger laws. No one has ever been prosecuted for victimising a corporate whistleblower in Australia.
In the US, a reward system operates, allowing whistleblowers to earn up to 30% of the money collected from penalties or legal action against government fraud. In 2014, whistleblowers received $435 million in the United States. As I talk, three Frenchmen, one of them a journalist who's a member of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, has just finished a trial in a Luxembourg court over leaked documents known as LuxLeaks. It was a scandal which lifted the lid on widespread tax avoidance by some of the world's biggest companies. The three whistleblowers face prison or a massive fine for releasing confidential information from PricewaterhouseCoopers. One of the whistleblowers, Antoine Delator, a former auditor of PwC, said he acted in the public interest. Delator copied confidential tax files of some of the biggest name companies while he was working at PwC. He's seen by many as a hero. Last year, the European Parliament presented him with the European Citizen Award for his whistleblowing exploits, one of 47 awarded each year. France's finance minister, Michael Sapin, is a man who can obviously smell the political winds. He told the French Parliament that Delator, the chief whistleblower, was defending the general interest. Sapin has asked the French ambassador to Luxembourg to provide assistance to Delator. So when you think of the big exposures of the past few years, financial scandals, the Panama Papers, Leighton Holdings, Una Oil, none would have come to light without the help of a whistleblower. The transformation of a whistleblower from stool pigeon and pariah is a welcome change, but we still have a long way to go. So too does the conversation about what motivates them. Do they have to be pearly white? At the end of the day, Shouldn't their motivation be irrelevant? Thanks to whistleblowers, it's put the debate about a royal commission into, into the banks firmly on the table. Because we're talking about everyday, hard-working Australians who are being treated poorly by the financial institutions they're supposed to trust. The abuses have also put the spotlight on the regulator and highlighted its shortcomings. In most cases, it's taken the media to expose corporate wrongdoing, not the regulator. The government says ASIC is the tough cop on the beat. It says it's great, it has greater powers than a royal commission. A lot of people think otherwise. In the past couple of weeks, the government has increased ASIC's budget and lifted its powers. It all sounds good in theory but the extra money is merely restoring what was ripped out of it in the past couple of years. The increased funding and powers are only useful if they're actually used, something that hasn't sat well with ASIC. It's trying to do better, but it's got a long way to go. So without a Royal Commission into the financial services sector, one thing's for sure, there will be more scandals and more whistleblowers wanting to do the right thing. But will they come forward under the current system that doesn't protect them, that leaves them open to smear and innuendo, and doesn't compensate them for the damage to their careers? Who could blame them if they fail to act in future, if we fail now on the Royal Commission? Not me. And just before I finish, there's an important point I'd like to touch on. Earlier this year, Guardian Australian journalist Paul Farrell re revealed the Australian Federal Police had a substantial file on him. 
The heavily redacted 200-plus page dossier details the quite extraordinary lengths the AFP has gone using new secrecy laws to identify sources for a story he'd written on asylum seekers. Whichever way you look at it, state-sanctioned spying on journalists is totally unacceptable, as are lengthy jail terms and heavy fines for taking on issues of public interest. These laws are a threat to investigative journalism and deter whistleblowers from speaking out. Once we head down this slippery path, there's no telling where it might end. As our current PM, a former worker journalist noted, we're one of the oldest democracies in the world. Our democracy depends on many men and women, on many institutions, all of them vitally important, but none is more important than a free and courageous press. Thank you. Thank you so much to Adele Ferguson, to MIA, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, and the International Federation of Journalists, Asia Pacific Chapter, to everyone who made the 2016 Press Freedom Australia Dinner a success by organizing, donating, joining us, spending all their money. The dinner raised nearly $42,000 for the Media Safety and Solidarity Fund. That is awesome. Thanks also to APAC, Australia's public affairs channel, for recording the speeches. Our podcast music is by Lee Rosevere. This is a production of the Walkley Foundation. You might know us for the Walkley Awards, but we are so much more than that. Our purpose is to celebrate and encourage great Australian journalism, telling the nation's stories, and strengthening democracy. Get on our email list at walkleys.com slash subscribe, and I will personally keep you up to date. I'm Kate Golden. Catch you next time.